Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Well, in the lead-up to the South Carolina primary, Donald Trump gave a couple of the most unhinged, dangerous speeches we've ever heard him give. And then he beat Nikki Haley in her home state. I'll talk to Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro about what it means for the Republican Party and how Joe Biden is really, actually, definitely the last guy standing between Trump and the White House, no matter what the cocktail party crowd is saying. Plus, an interview I've been looking forward to for a very long time. Sarah Matthews is the former deputy White House press secretary for Donald Trump. She testified before the January 6th committee, and she'll be here in studio to talk about what concerns her most about a possible second term. And later, Trump tries his presidential immunity gambit, this time in the classified documents case. The law firm of Weissman and Katiel joins me to pick that one apart as only they can. Okay, so last night, Donald Trump won the South Carolina primary, as expected. He was ahead by 30 points. It all put him one step closer to the Republican nomination. Now, Nikki Haley did get about 40 percent of the vote, about the same margin she got in New Hampshire in a much more conservative state, also her home state, important context. But 40 percent is not, in her words, a tiny group. And there are some real warning signs in the anti-Trump vote from last night for the former president. And that matters. Because no matter how long Nikki Haley stays in this race, the general election is well underway. It has been for weeks. Now, you don't need to agree with Haley on much. I don't necessarily. But you can still acknowledge she has been making a clear case against Trump in speech after speech. And that case is one of stark contrast. Trump is dangerous. She is normal. Trump is chaotic. She is stable. Trump is old. She is young. I mean, she's not wrong on any of this. But as we saw yet again last night, for the majority of the Republican electorate, none of it sticks. None of it seems to matter because Republican primary voters, including, again, the majority of Republican primary voters in Haley's home state, don't want or don't seem to want a young, experienced conservative governor who delivers solid speeches and doesn't appear to be unhinged. They want Donald Trump. See, the thing is, Nikki Haley is running for president, as many, many people have before her in her party and the Democratic Party. Trump is running for something else entirely. The office he is seeing, is eyeing, is looking to, does not resemble the office of the president of the United States. Trump is actually running to end the presidency as we know it. I'm not letting you in on some big secret here. Trump is telling us that this is what he plans to do over and over again. His intentions are clear as day. It's anyone watching, listening to him over the course of his campaign and all the speeches he's giving. I mean, let's just take the last couple of days, because just over the last three days, Trump gave three of the most bizarre, unhinged, bigoted, very hard to follow speeches I have ever heard him give. He trivialized black voters with a disgusting and racist rant on Friday night, claiming that the black community likes him more because he was indicted and has a mugshot. I mean... He referred to himself as a political dissident on Saturday, which is an insult to real political dissidents around the world, of which there are many. He also cast November's election as, quote, judgment day, 
And that's just a sampling, a sampling of the concerning nonsense we've heard over the past few days. Republican voters know that this is who he is. And they showed us once again last night that this is what they want. Remember, these voters were presented with plenty of alternatives to Trump. A super conservative governor and culture warrior from Florida. A super conservative senator from South Carolina. A never Trump former governor from New Jersey. All very different, imperfect in some of their own ways, but all perfectly rational alternate options. And they were all tossed aside by the majority of the Republican electorate. Voters did not want any of them. They want the day one dictator. That's who they want. They like the guy who echoes Adolf Hitler and idolizes Vladimir Putin. They want the promises of retribution. They want a leader free from the rule of law. They want something different than democracy. And guys, I'm here to tell you that the only person standing in the way of all of that right now is this guy right here, President Joe Biden. Joining me now is the Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro. Governor Shapiro, I'm so happy you could stop by it's during your, your busy weekend. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me in studio. Uh, you can come anytime. Um, so let me just start. I mean, the Republican primary right now, Nikki Haley is running as a conservative. Yeah. She's got quite a resume in many ways, uh-huh. yet she doesn't seem to be resonating with Republican voters. You're a savvy political guy. Why not? I mean, it's Donald Trump's party. And it's an extremist party. And it is a party that has continually, at least in my home state since 2016, taken it on the chin. Everybody who's a Trump offspring or someone who tries to be a partial Trump or a half Trump, the way it seems like Nikki Haley is, continues to lose in Pennsylvania, which is sort of the ultimate swing state. And I think it's because folks want more freedom, not less. I think folks don't want the chaos of Donald Trump and his offspring the way they continually uh, bring that about. And I expect Pennsylvania voters to do their part to continue to protect and expand freedom and stand up against those extremists. Well, we're going to get into the politics of it because Pennsylvania is going to be so pivotal. But I did want to ask you about something Donald Trump said this weekend. I mean, it's hard to keep track sometimes of all the crazy things he said. But this weekend, he basically said that you see people, black people, walk around with my mugshot. You said he claimed that the black community embraced him because he was indicted. Now, you are a former attorney general. You're someone very similar, uh, familiar with the legal system. I want to know what you thought when you heard those remarks. Well, look, I I think it's more um, just hot air from Donald Trump, more noise, um, trying to inject more chaos and more division within our communities. Um, He obviously has to try and go out uh, and compete for every vote. But I will say that his legal troubles should not be something that is viewed as any sort of positive in any way, but rather just sort of part of a long history of him being someone who can't tell the truth, him someone believing that the law does not apply to him, even though it applies to others, of course. And as the former attorney general of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, who took him to court you know, on fraud issues, and we just saw the latest um, you know, where he was found liable mm-hmm. in New York for fraud. But I took him to court 43 different times during the election when he wanted to throw out our votes, when he wanted to cancel the votes primarily of black and brown folks in Pennsylvania. And by the way, I won every single case against him. He is a guy who believes the law doesn't apply to him. And I think it's up to us to make sure that we consistently show no one is above the law in this country, especially Donald Trump. It's pretty clear to me that the last person standing between Donald Trump 
and the White House is Joe Biden. But there are a lot of parlor games, but some people who are concerned out there uh, about Joe Biden um, being the nominee for uh, the presidency. I'm I'm not saying I'm one of them, but there are certainly concerns out there. And there was a recent New York Times opinion piece from Ezra Klein titled, Democrats have a better option than Biden. Now, as I've just expressed, I don't think these parlor games are honestly that helpful. But you were mentioned in there, as were a number of other young governors. What do you tell people? And I'm sure there are many who come up to you and they say, I wish you were running. I wish another governor was running who was your age and had your energy. What do you say to them? Well, Joe Biden's going to be our nominee, and I'm proud to support him. I'm proud to get out there and talk about his record of achievement and make sure I prosecute the case against Donald Trump and show the clear contrast between the kind of chaos Donald Trump would bring and the way President Biden is there to protect our freedom and expand it. When folks come over to me and say nice things, look, I'm just glad they're paying attention to our work in Pennsylvania. Our GSD attitude, I know it's a family program, so I'll just say our get stuff done attitude. The get way we sugar done, get, as my grandmother would say. There you go, say. all right, we'll go with grandma's <laughs> language. Um, the way we've cut taxes and at the same time invested historic amounts in public education and in public safety, the way we're growing our economy. I'm glad folks are taking note of what we're doing in Pennsylvania, and I'm proud to be out there supporting Joe Biden. He will be our nominee. I want to turn to Alabama. There's just always so much going on, and especially given your background, and you've been such a strong advocate for pro-choice rights for women across the country. The the state Supreme Court in Alabama, of course, ruled frozen embryos are the legal equivalent to children. Donald Trump actually expressed support for IVF. Uh, He can read a poll. We can give him that. Um, But what do you do? do? What should Democrats be doing to make clear to the public— who is the candidate and the party of defending women's rights and who is the candidate not? Yeah. You know, Jen, throughout my campaign for governor in Pennsylvania, and even during my time as attorney general, I spoke a lot about freedom and protecting our freedoms. In fact, some of the political pundits and others questioned why I'd be talking about freedom all the time. And I think this is an area where you have a clear contrast between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, between the Democratic Party and Republicans. We, the Democrats, and Joe Biden, we are the party of freedom, protecting and expanding freedom. Donald Trump has been hell-bent on ripping away the freedoms of the American people. He packed the Supreme Court and put in motion the steps to overturn Roe v. Wade. He was successful at that. He is trying to control women's bodies. This IVF decision is yet the next step in that process. And sadly, I fear in the next several weeks or months, we will get a decision restricting access Mm -hmm. to mifepristone. Another step. Next few weeks, you think, even? We'll see. I have no inside Mm -hmm. scoop on that. It is likely to happen soon. What we know is that the Republican Party today is trying to restrict our freedoms, whether it's trying to control women's bodies or family decision making for couples, whether it is trying to tell parents what books they're allowed to read, or whether it is trying to control our votes. The bottom line is the Republican Party, while they love to cloak themselves in the blanket of freedom, while they love to talk a good game about freedom, they're all about restricting our freedoms. The Democratic Party is about expanding our freedoms, and I'm proud to be one of the leaders of that effort. That's the contrast. Also, in that filing you mentioned, Dobbs is mentioned 15 times, so it draws a clear connection. Before I let you go, I did you touched on this a little bit, but I'm interested in your thoughts. I mean, we're all waiting to see, of course, what the Supreme Court is going to do on the issue of presidential immunity. And you have, as you've said, uh, argued so many cases against Donald Trump. What, what should 
we all make? I mean, he seems his claim seems to be in nearly every case. I'm immune. I'm immune, including in the classified documents case. What does that tell us beyond the legal about his own view of the legal system and and how it applies to him or not? Donald Trump believes the law does not apply to him. And, you know, look, there are times where he can get on a good run and evade the law, but eventually the law catches up to everyone. The law needs to be applied without fear or favor. We saw it in New York courtroom last week, and you cited the documents case as an example. You know, if you just look at the basic facts of that case, it really sort of elucidates the broader view Donald Trump has of himself and the fact that the law doesn't apply to him. Consider this. He takes these confidential, top-secret mm-hmm. documents, documents that are not allowed to leave the White House. You know this from mm-hmm. your public service. And look, accidents can happen, but then once the Justice Department, once the other agencies reached out to him and said, hey, you got these documents you're not supposed to have, what did he do? He obstructed justice. He obstructed justice. He didn't give them back mm-hmm. because he doesn't believe the law applies to him. He kept them. And then when they came after him further, he tried to hide it. Then he had other people help him in that process and use them to cover it up. It's actually a pretty simple example, a simple fact pattern, I would say, of the broader issue here that he doesn't think the law applies to him. So whether it's about um, the fraud of Trump University, something mm-hmm. you know we dealt with back when I was mm-hmm. attorney general, whether it's this documents case, whether it's any of these other cases before him, the bottom line is our justice system needs to hold everyone who breaks the law accountable. And Donald Trump should be absolutely no exception. He is not above the law. A good way to end, Governor Shapiro. Thank you for coming by. Always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Jen. And coming up from January 6th pinball to a choir made up of insurrectionists, Donald Trump and his supporters are fully embracing the insurrection as he marches toward the Republican nomination. Sarah Matthews served as deputy press secretary during the Trump administration. She testified before the House January 6th committee, and now she's speaking up louder than ever. Sarah's standing by here in studio, and I cannot wait to talk to her, former White House press aide to former White House press aide. We'll be right back. Hey, did you know there's a little pink pill? Wait, a what? A little pink pill? Did you say a little pink pill? Yes, the little pink pill. You definitely need to know about this. Are you for real? Just to be clear, you're telling me there's a little pink pill for me? That's right. The little pink pill. And it's called Addy. A-D-D-Y-I. Or Flavanserin. Learn more about the little pink pill at addyi.com. See full prescribing information and medication guide, including boxed warning regarding severe low blood pressure and fainting in certain settings at addy.com slash PI or call 844-PINK-PILL. Good news, ladies. There's more. Addy, the FDA-approved little pink pill, is also affordable and can be shipped directly to your front door. That's right. With insurance coverage, Addy is only $20 per month and $0 after month three. If your insurance doesn't cover Addy, there is still a discount program to get you the best possible price and get free shipping right to your door. So now's the time to ask your doctor about Addy. Learn more at Addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I.com. So three years ago, Donald Trump incited a violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Last night, he won another Republican primary, putting him on a glide path to the nomination. And as remarkable as the political comeback in some way seems— it's important to remember that lots of Republican voters don't forgive Trump for inciting a coup. They like him for it. So Trump isn't running from January 6th at all. He's running toward it. 
At a number of rallies leading up to the South Carolina primary, a song called Justice for All blared over the speakers. It's sung by a choir made up of people convicted for their roles on January 6th. Trump also continued to refer to insurrectionists as hostages, which has basically become a staple of his stump speech. At CPAC this week, a Trump supporter brought a January 6th-themed pinball machine to the convention call. Call. Whenever you're playing, you can hear Trump saying, let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. And I want, to, I want you to listen to what right-wing conspiracy theorist Jack Pasobiak, Pasobiak uh, had to say at, at CPAC. And before you do, I should tell you that this is someone who Trump praised recently for doing a great job on his behalf. I just wanted to say, look, welcome to the end of democracy. <laughs> we are here to overthrow it completely. We didn't get all the way there on January 6th, but we will, we, we will endeavor to, forget, to get rid of it and replace it with, with this right here. We'll replace it with this right, right here. Amen. We didn't get all the way there on January 6th. When they tell us their plans, we have to listen. And in some ways, what you just heard is the worldview that won the Republican primary in South Carolina last night. Joining me now is Sarah Matthews. I've been really looking forward to talking to her. She was deputy White House press secretary during the Trump administration, a job I actually had in the Obama administration. She resigned in the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection and then testified before the House January 6th committee. I would just let me start by saying what you did was incredibly courageous. Incredibly. Thank you so much for saying that and for having me on today. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you being here. I just wanted to start with kind of what I what I said there, because I'm sure for you, I mean, you have said you resigned on January 6th, shortly afterwards, that it was a slow burn, which is a phrase you use that really stuck with me from the election until January 6th. What is it? How do you digest when you see Donald Trump running towards January 6th, almost proudly running as a as a part of the insurrection? I think if you would have told me back when I resigned on January 6, 2021, that just a few short years later, Donald Trump would still be the leader of the Republican Party and be marching toward the GOP nomination for 2024, and that he would not be uh, showing any remorse for January 6, I would be shocked. Because he's embracing it. He's embracing it. And that's what's most crazy to me is that he has continued to double down on his election lies, despite there being zero evidence of fraud, shown zero remorse for what happened on January 6th. And I mean, look at it. I obviously we've seen the footage of police officers being beaten by these rioters that day. Mm -hmm. And it is horrific for me to watch that footage back. It gives me chills just thinking about it. But also when you really think about it, too. Um, Donald Trump put a target on his own vice president's back that day. They were chanting hang things Mike like Pence. hang Mike Pence. And even to this day, he does not care. I, I'm sure you've been watching um, because you've been so outspoken kind of how he's been talking in public in, in recent in recent days and weeks. And you are someone I know from the role. You probably read speeches. You edited speeches. You're very familiar with how he talks. Mm-hmm. As you're watching, do you think he's gotten worse, more unhinged? I do think that he's gotten more unhinged in his rhetoric. Obviously, Donald Trump's first four years in office uh, were marked by lots of controversies. But I think that the type of rhetoric that he's using um, today, it's really concerning. It's almost Hitler-esque in a way, Mm -hmm. especially when he talks about things like immigration, saying things like poisoning the blood of our country. I mean, he's trying to prey on people's worst instincts and get them angry and riled up. And that's something he tends to do. But it's just the rhetoric that he's using is really concerning to me now. 
uh, as it's concerning to so many people. And that may be it. But as you because you you've watched him, you worked in the White House. What do you want people to know about the threat of a second term? I think it sounds pretty alarmist when um, folks like myself are out there saying that Donald Trump is a threat to our democracy. But at the end of the day, you don't have to take my word for it. You just have to look at what he's saying and pay close attention when he says things like he's going to be a dictator on day one. And not even just his words. He showed us already what a second Trump term would look like by the way his first uh, term ended. Because, look, he could not accept the fact that he lost Um, in 2020 to Joe Biden. So then he tried to overturn a free and fair election and helped incite an insurrection on our nation's capital. And so I think that is exactly what a second Trump term would look like then, because it shows that he has no regard for our Constitution, for our institutions or for the rule of law, because he thinks he's above the law. Let me ask you about that period of time. I mean, you have sort of this famous, I'm sure you did not intend for it to be famous, (laughs) but moment where you are kind of waving around papers and saying, does it look like we're effing ahead? I'm paraphrasing here and not using the actual word. Do you worry that if he's reelected, he might try to hold on to the presidency again? Is that something we should all be talking about and aware of more? Yeah, I think it is something that we need to be very aware of is not just what would happen if he loses, but if he wins again. I mean, obviously, it would be his second term if he were elected again. And so you would think that he would be out of office. But I think that he would try to do anything to stay in power. And I think that's what's going to be so critical then is who he chooses for his vice president, Mm -hmm. because obviously that person then would be in charge of certifying the next election and all of that. And I think that that is really concerning to me because obviously we've seen some of his potential um, VP picks out there auditioning, saying things like they wouldn't have uh, done what Mike Pence did on January 6th, that they would have not certified the election. And so I think it is something that reporters- Some of them were hiding behind desks on January 6th. We know who they are. Yes, exactly. And so it's really ironic then to hear them say that January 6th, Uh, rioters were hostages now Mm. and use a language like that, because um, I think we've seen that their statements um, in the immediate aftermath of January 6th show that their feelings then are very different than what they're saying today. Do you I mean, you've mentioned Mike Johnson before you've talked about him and, and Liz Cheney has talked about the enablers and you know so well, as you just described, it's not just Donald Trump. There need to be people enabling him. Do you worry about him being an enabler? Um, specifically Mike Johnson. Yeah, Yeah, no, I'm definitely concerned about that. I think right now, today, what we're looking at with the Ukraine aid bill and him holding this up, I mean, Congress right now is on uh, recess, the House is, and they don't go back until February 28th. I I think I saw Brian Fitzpatrick on TV the other day, congressman from Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. saying that um, it's not a matter of months, it's a matter of weeks before um, the soldiers in Ukraine run out of ammunition and resources. And so you would think that then Speaker Mike Johnson would be doing everything he could to try to get this aid to them. And especially in the wake of Navalny's death, yeah. I think that we need to be sending a message as America and say we're going to stand on the side of freedom and not on the side of evil and Putin. But instead, it seems like Speaker Mike Johnson is more concerned with appeasing Donald Trump. And that could play out post an election. And that's something that used to be a a fundamental of the Republican Party. You know, I want to ask you, I I was struck, and I mentioned this to you during the break, I I read through the transcript um, of your conversation from yesterday with Alyssa Farah and Cassidy Hutchinson, and I was just struck by how your three young women who are powerfully having your voices heard courageously, you are being attacked from the right, attacked by members of the MAGA base, 
I just wanted to ask about your your friendship and kind of uh, do you have a text chain? Uh, how do you guys stay in touch? Are there other people that you think are going to be out there before between now and the election that will join your text chain? I should say. I'm so grateful for um, Cassidy and Alyssa, and also I will add to that um, Olivia Troy and Stephanie Grisham. They are some of the women from the Trump administration who have also spoken out. And so, yeah, I have a text chain with them. We talk in it. Um, almost daily, if not um, daily, then definitely multiple times a week. And I'm, I think speaking out against a former U.S. president can be a very isolating and scary feeling, but it definitely gives me a lot of strength to know that I have these women um, by my side to get through this together. And I'm hopeful that more Republicans will come. Anyone on, my, on your mind? I, I don't know. I think that it's obviously we look around and it's mainly the women and especially young women who are speaking out. And so I'm I would just encourage maybe the men who are twice my age, who held way higher positions of power than me, who also know that Donald Trump is unfit to serve, to speak out. And I know that we've got some time uh, before Election Day, but I'm hoping that as we get closer and they see the threat that Donald Trump is and the very real chance that he could be president again, that they will come forward. Grow some. You know what? <laughs> um, that's that's my shorthand. So let me ask you, I mean, you've been very clear you don't want President Trump to be back in the White House. You've courageously talked about the threat. You are a Republican. That's why you joined the White House. You've worked for Republican candidates. Are you open to supporting Joe Biden? Yeah, I have said that if it is a choice um, between Donald Trump and Joe Biden in a general election, that even if I don't agree with the policies of President Biden, that I would put policy aside and I would cast my vote for him for democracy because I look at Donald Trump and this is someone who has shown us that he will not uphold the Constitution. And so there is no question in my mind then that I would be voting for um, Joe Biden. But I will say right now, my support has been with Nikki Haley. I'm really encouraged to see her performance last night in South Carolina. I know she lost, but look, she garnered 40 percent of the vote. And that shows that there is a faction in the Republican Party that wants to leave Donald Trump behind. And so it gives me hope for the future. No, you're a Nikki Haley supporter. If she's not on the ballot, Joe Biden can count on your vote. Sarah Matthews, thank you so much for joining me and for your courage in speaking out. I know it's not easy. Really appreciate it. Coming up, the law firm of Weissman and Katiel is standing by to discuss what might be the most bogus legal argument we've heard from Donald Trump yet. Andrew says it's as insane as a bank robber saying he legally bought the gun he used. I love Andrew's analogies always. We're back after a quick break. Hey, did you know there's a little pink pill? Wait. A what? A little pink pill? Did you say a little pink pill? Yes, the little pink pill. You definitely need to know about this. Are you for real? Just to be clear, you're telling me there's a little pink pill for me? That's right. The little pink pill. And it's called Addy. A-D-D-Y-I. Or Flibanserin. Learn more about the little pink pill at addyi.com. See full prescribing information and medication guide, including boxed warning regarding severe low blood pressure and fainting in certain settings at addy.com slash P-I. Or call 844-PINK-PILL. Good news, ladies. There's more. Addy, the FDA-approved little pink pill, is also affordable and can be shipped directly to your front door. That's right. With insurance coverage, Addy is only $20 per month and $0 after month three. If your insurance doesn't cover Addy, there is still a discount program to get you the best possible price and get free shipping right to your door. So now's the time to ask your doctor about Addy. Learn more at Addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I.com. Of all the cockamamie legal arguments that Trump and his lawyers have made, few are crazier than what we heard this week. 
In an effort to get his classified documents case dismissed, Trump is now claiming that the records that he retained from the White House were actually designated as his personal property. That's not how it works, by the way. And according to Trump, they belong to him simply because he removed them from the White House. He just takes the records and presto change He owns them. Here's the kicker. Because Trump was still president when he took those records, he claims he is entitled to presidential immunity and therefore can't be prosecuted for retaining them. Of course, this claim of sweeping immunity is nothing new. It's the same argument he made in the federal election case, and it could soon be settled by the Supreme Court. Joining me now is everyone's favorite in-house law firm. Neil Katyal is the former acting U.S. Solicitor General. Andrew Weissman is the former general counsel at the FBI and a senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's team. He's also the co-author of a brand new book coming out this week, The Trump Indictments, the historic charging documents with commentary. So, Neil, let me start with you. I'm, I'm not a lawyer, as we all know. I have dealt with classified documents, however, and these arguments do seem pretty far-fetched. It's not exactly how it works. Even if Trump was allowed to take whatever he wanted, he was charged with illegally retaining those documents, even after they were subpoenaed. So how does this help his case? I assume it does not, but break it all down for us. Yeah, it doesn't. And I think the first thing to note is just the relationship between this discussion and the one you were just having with Sarah Matthews, because Ms. Matthews said that Trump's policies are antithetical to the rule of law and democracy. And here he's doing the same thing. He's saying, I'm immune and I'm going to delay all of these cases against me uh, so that I don't have to face the wheels of justice. Again, it's all about just being antithetical to the rule of law and democracy. And so here his claim is, you know, look, I'm immune while I'm president, even though that was flatly rejected by our nation's second highest court just a couple of weeks ago. And as you point out, it doesn't matter because he is charged with retaining the documents after he was president. So it's not about his presidential duties. And it connects up to the overall problem with Trump, which is always a heads I win, tails you lose theory of presidential accountability. You know, when he was president, he said, I can't be indicted because I'm a sitting president. You can mm -hmm. only impeach me. He was then impeached. And then he says, you can't impeach me. You can only indict me after I leave office. Uh, he's then indicted after he leaves office and says, you can't indict me because I was never impeached. I mean, it's all just a shell game. It's, it makes your head spin. So, Andrew, there's a lot of immunity uh, claims being thrown out there, as Neil was just alluding to. I mean, the Supreme Court is, is comes as the Supreme Court is ways whether to take up Trump's first claim of immunity in the federal election case. And as we've discussed, and if you've pointed out, if they even take up the case, it will delay the federal election case. So how does this claim or does it impact their decision or their consideration about whether or not to take the case? Well, from Donald Trump's perspective, there's sort of no downside in doing this because at the very least, he's throwing sand in the gears in connection with the Florida case. Um, the motions, as, as you and Neil have discussed, are frivolous. Um, but that doesn't mean that it won't give um, the excuse for uh, Judge Cannon to continue to delay the case, which she so far has uh, grabbed onto every single one of those. Um, with respect to the Supreme Court, they're not directly related. But, you know, again, I can imagine that Trump's lawyers are thinking no downside if the court sees that there's a second claim for immunity in a very different context mm -hmm. <laughs> after he is president um, when you think you wouldn't be able to make that claim. But um, that means that this this will be litigated in a different circuit. The, the case that's before them is in the D.C. circuit. Mm -hmm. So now you have another case. There could be some justices who are going to grab onto that as a reason to take the case. 
Um, so, you know, that's, I think, something that if you're Donald Trump's lawyers, probably was in the back of their mind. I'm not sure it'll succeed, but again, no downside for them to make this argument. It's all a little maddening. Um, okay, Neil, I mean, just we're just rolling around to all the cases. Alien Cannon, I think it's fair to say, has been unusually sympathetic to Trump in the documents case. These new claims from Trump, Trump though, just to go back to the, the, that case, they seem like still a bridge too far. I know it's hard to predict what a judge will do, but what, how do you think she would be looking at this? Well, I think any fair-minded judge would take these claims and throw them out pretty much right away. I mean, in addition to the immunity claim we were just talking about is a claim that the special counsel is unconstitutional. Presidents of both parties, George W. Bush and others, have used these exact regulations and have found no constitutional defects. I think those claims are, are weak, um, as well as the other ones. And, you know, this is a judge who's been rebuked twice by the Court of Appeals in her very conservative circuit for going going out and bending over backwards to try and protect Donald Trump. So mm -hmm. my hope is that, you know, she's learned her lesson. We will find out maybe as early as Friday whether she'll keep that May 20th trial date, extend it, how long she'll extend it. Um, obviously, there's a concern if she extends it past the election that Donald Trump wins and will uh, nullify this prosecution, order it dropped. Um, and then, of course, no accountability for him for what are very serious crimes. And, you know, any president, any government official of any party who did anything like this would have been indicted by now, would be indicted and indeed convicted by now. Andrew Weissman, Neil Katziel, thank you as always for explaining all of the legal things to us. Really appreciate your time. And coming up after Alabama paused IVF treatment following a state Supreme Court ruling, I've got a couple of questions like, does Tommy Tupperville even know what IVF is? I think you know the answer to that. And does Donald Trump, who's now voicing support for IVF, think we all just forgot that he's the reason we're dealing with this in the first place? I'm going to remind you, I'll do my best to control my rage on this one, but we'll be right back. This week, several hospitals in Alabama, including the biggest in the state, took the devastating step of pausing in vitro fertilization treatment. And they did that because the Alabama Supreme Court recently ruled that embryos created through IVF are considered children. Let's just say the responses we've heard from some Republicans since all of this happened have been incredibly revealing. Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville is Exhibit A. In fact, he's actually earned himself Exhibit A, B, and C. Do you have a reaction to the Alabama Supreme Court ruling on the fact that embryos are children? Yeah, I was all for it. Uh, you know, you just got to look at everything going on in the country. It's a, just attack on families, attack on kids. You know, anything that we can do for the future of our young people because they're our number one commodity. We need to have more kids. We need to have an opportunity to do that. I mean, he's all for ending IVF treatment, but we need more kids. Obviously, it doesn't take a medical degree to know that his two statements are blatant contradictions, which NBC's Dasha Burns quickly pointed out. IVF is used to have more children, and right now IVF services are paused at some of the clinics in Alabama. Aren't you concerned that this could impact people who are trying to have kids? Well, that's for, that's for another conversation. What do you say to the women right now in Alabama who no longer have access to IVF or who will not as a result of this ruling? What do you say to them? Well, well, that's a hard one. That's a hard one. Is it, Tommy Tuberville? I mean, it's clearly a very hard one for you. But watching that interview, it seems very likely to me that Tommy Tuberville, Senator Tommy Tuberville, didn't have a clue what IVF is, clearly. 
I guess maybe someone on his staff explained it to him after that debacle because Senator Summerbull has since come out in support of IVF. But to be fair, he isn't the only one who seems very confused. Senator Tim Scott said he hadn't studied the issue. I mean, does it really require a study, Senator Scott? At first, Nikki Haley said flat out embryos or babies. Then she said, well, I didn't say that I agreed with the Alabama ruling. And then in her third try, she said, I think that the court was doing it based on the law. And I think Alabama needs to go back and look at the uh, law. Now, not to be outdone, of course, House Speaker Mike Johnson says he supports IVF, calling it, quote, a blessing for many moms and dads who have struggled with fertility. Sounds good. However, it's completely bizarre at best because he is a currently a co-sponsor of a fetal personhood bill, which, just like the Alabama ruling, gives fertilized eggs legal protection without carve-outs for IVF treatments. Basically, to sum this all up, he's proposed doing the same thing as the Alabama ruling, but making it federal law. And this pretty sudden shift from some of these Republicans is because, wait for it, IVF is extremely popular. Former Trump advisor Kellyanne Conway circulated polling to congressional Republicans back in December, showing 85 percent of Americans supported increasing access to IVF. Of course, 78 percent of self-identified pro-life voters and 83 percent of evangelicals said the same. Now, Donald Trump clearly doesn't have a moral compass on any issue related to women or families. After all, he's backing a 16-week national abortion ban because he likes that it's an even number. But... He does know how to read a poll. And that's why he just came out in support of IVF and urged Alabama to reverse course. The thing is, Donald Trump really hopes you forget that Donald Trump is the reason we arrived at this point. I did something that nobody thought was possible. I got rid of Roe v. Wade. Nobody did a job like I did, including Roe v. Wade, bringing it back to the states. What I did by killing Roe v. Wade, which everyone said was impossible. I was able to terminate Roe v. Wade after 50 years of trying. They worked for 50 years. I've never seen anything like it. They worked. And I was even I was so honored to have done it. I was so honored to have done it. What Donald Trump brags about doing, the thing he is so proud of doing, opened the door to what we are witnessing in Alabama right now. Alabama Supreme Court ruling literally cites the Dobbs decision by my count 15 times. So some Republicans will twist themselves into knots. Others will shout their support from IVF from the rooftops after they study it, I guess. But this is on them. They want us to forget how we got here and we shouldn't let them. Coming up, a story about two former presidents who both wanted to be president again. Spoiler alert, only one of them is is doing it under criminal indictment in four different jurisdictions. We'll be right back. So much about Donald Trump's time in politics, both during and after his time in office, has been unprecedented, to put it diplomatically, and not the good unprecedented. He's the first to ever be impeached twice. He's the first to obstruct the transfer of power. He's the first to be criminally indicted. And he recently became the first to ever encourage a U.S. adversary to attack a U.S. ally. That may explain why historians recently put Trump dead last in an annual ranking of former U.S. presidents in a survey by the American Political Science Association. What's not unprecedented, however, is that Trump is not the first former president to seek the White House for a second term. A few have tried, but the only person to successfully pull that off is Grover Cleveland. 
who served non-consecutive terms as the country's 22nd and 24th president. Now, Cleveland is one of seven former chief executives whose stories are told in the new book, Life After Power, by author Jared Cohen. It's a look at how presidents cope with life once they're out of office. And it's further a reminder that when it comes to history of the presidency in this country, Donald Trump is the exception and not the rule. Joining me now is Jared Cohen, author of the new book, Life After Power. So, Jared, your book is so great. I've been reading it. I've really enjoyed it. Learned a lot about presidents and their post-presidency. But one of the people I did not expect to start our conversation with is Grover Cleveland. Few people are talking about him or have been talking about him for decades. But there is this interesting parallel. And you have an entire chapter about this in your book, because it turns out, as you say, former presidents are very bad at running for president, except Grover Cleveland. He, he won the White House in 80, 1884, lost it in 1888, but then made a comeback in 1892. Now, that may be where the parallels end. But Trump is running again after losing in 2020. What can we take away from the Grover Cleveland example as we all look to cover the next nine months of this campaign? Uh, well, thank you for having me, Jen. Look, the, the, the similarity is, of course, 2024 is likely to feature the only presidential rematch with the two candidates of the, the, the two major parties other than 1892 when Grover Cleveland came back to challenge incumbent Benjamin Harrison. But that's kind of where the analogy stops. Grover Cleveland never lost the popular vote in 1888. In fact, he threw away the presidency, much to the frustration of the Democratic Party mm -hmm. bosses, because he stood on principle against a tariff hike because he didn't think the country needed it. And by the way, he'd never been happier than when he threw away the presidency. He had gotten married while president. He wanted to start a family. He enjoyed the peace and tranquility of his post-presidency. But what brought him back in 1892 was that same sense of principle, saving the country from economic ruin, the growing tide of imperialism, and so forth. A bit different, as you noted from today. But I do want to get to President Taft. You talk about him also in your book, because we're at this moment right now where the power of the judiciary and specifically the Supreme Court could, of course, have a real impact on our political system. And as somebody who served as president and chief justice, I mean, he has such a unique role in our history. And he wrote something that you talk about in your book in an opinion that basically defined what it means to defraud the government, which, of course, is an issue in present day. So in your book, you quote, you write this. In the court's opinion, Taft wrote, it doesn't just mean cheating Washington out of money. It also means to interfere with or obstruct lawful government functions by deceit, craft or trickery, or at least by means that are dishonest. I mean, that you're quoting him there, of course. But this is just a reminder, of course, that throughout history, there were efforts to prepare for the moment we are facing facing now. This was obviously more than 100 years ago. And as you say in your book, Trump will essentially have to pass the Taft test, which I thought was a pretty interesting uh, connection to today. Look, when, when Taft wrote Hammerschmidt versus the United States, I don't think he expected he'd be weighing in on the 2024 presidential election. Probably but not. here we are. <laughs> The other thing that's interesting about Taft, he wrote extensively about the unchecked powers of the executive branch, particularly as it pertains to foreign policy. And if you look at the 2024 presidential election, it's not going to be about foreign policy, but it's going to have mm -hmm. a huge impact on foreign policy. And if you look at what's happening in, uh, between U.S. and China, what's happening with war in the Middle East, what's happening with war in Ukraine, the world is watching to see the outcome of this election because it has profound 
consequences. And William Howard Taft is the only president who's served at the top of two branches of, of the of, of the U.S. government. And you know, I look at seven different you know presidents in this book. Each represent a different model. The Taft model is a model of a man who never wanted anything other than to be on the Supreme Court. He revered the judicial system. Mm. In his last 10 years of life, he finally achieves his dream of becoming chief justice of the Supreme Court. And at the end of his life, somebody asks him what he enjoyed more, being president or being chief justice. And he says, I hardly remember I was ever president. Jared Cohen, thank you. The book is Life After Power. You're such an amazing storyteller. It's such an interesting read. It's available now where you get your books. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jen. I've got one more thing to tell you about today. It's something we're working on for tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern, so stay with us. We'll be right back. That does it for me today, but I am really looking forward to tomorrow night because we have an all-star lineup of guests, including Pre Barrara, the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Certainly no shortage of topics to cover with him at all, as the countdown starts for Donald Trump to put up the money to appeal his civil fraud judgment in New York. Plus, Michigan Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin will join us on the eve of the primary day in her state. Those two guests and more we're working on are on tap for tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.